we are excited to start Fools Who Fight the Future Part 2. And um, as we do so, we're going to be looking at the first and the third chapter of Daniel. Last night we talked about Daniel chapter 2, and we talked about the, the great empire of Babylon. Babylon was uh, founded by Nebuchadnezzar around 605 B.C., and um, he defeated the Pharaoh, and that's how he sort of became the, the prominent ruler of the world. He, he, def- he defeated Pharaoh, and um, to, def- to avoid the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, King Jehoiakim that same year actually agreed to, to be subservient to the king of Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, and to pay tribute. Now, if you read the book of Jeremiah, you'll find that there became a political situation where later on, around 601 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar had another skirmish with Pharaoh, which didn't turn out so well in his favor, and Pharaoh began to exert some of his own autonomy, and Israel, or or Judah, I should say, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, began to say, well, you know what? We don't have to pay our tribute to Babylon because we're going to let Egypt protect us. We'll pay a smaller tribute to Egypt. And, and you know what? The, the prophet Jeremiah counseled the king, don't do it, don't do it. But he did it anyway. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar came on the siege of Jerusalem in 597 B.C. and, and uh, completely destroyed the city. Now, this was, would have been the second time that he came to Jerusalem, but he, he now takes captives um, with him back to Babylon. And there's plenty of history to back this up, and including in the engravings and murals and artwork of the Babylonians. Um, they took these captives back to, Jeru- uh, to Babylon, and this is the story that we pick up in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 3. So, if you have your Bibles, open them to Daniel chapter 1 and verse 3. We're going to be following along here the story of Daniel and his three friends that we find in Daniel chapter 1. Now, you might ask the question, why in the world are we talking about a story? We want to learn about the prophecies, right? That's a good question, and the reason I believe that we're, we should talk about this story tonight, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but the reason I believe we should talk about this story tonight is simply this, because the stories help us to understand the context and the, the impact of the prophecies when we get to, get to them. Not only that, these stories are borrowed by John the Revelator. We're going to get to Revelation this evening and, and look at how John borrows some of these stories from the book of Revelation to help us understand the prophecies of what's going to happen in the future. Isn't it amazing how God uses things in the past to help us understand the future? And that's, that's what we're looking at t- tonight. So, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 3 says, The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youth in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So what's happening here is that King Nebuchadnezzar, he's trying to figure out a way to keep his growing empire together. He said, well, if I will bring some of the, some of the prominent sons of, of well-known, maybe even royal families, if I can bring them to Babylon, 
Teach them Babylonian culture. Teach them to think the way we think, to even worship the way we worship. Then I can send them back as my emissaries, rulers in their own provinces, and this will unite the empire. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was no slouch. I mean, he was bright, right? He had a, he had a great strategy, a great plan, and I'm sure he thought it would work very well. The, the problem was that, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had was so interested in this process that he, he actually, it appears from the biblical record, he was micromanaging the process. Let's look, at, let's look and see what the Bible says. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So the king evidently is very personally involved in these young men in their treatment, in the way they're, to, even the way they're to be fed, what they're supposed to be fed. That's what the verse tells us here, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 5. And um, these three, uh, four young men that stand out in the first chapter of the book of Daniel, I'm sure there were many other Hebrew young men, but we don't know about them. We don't know about them. We only find these four. They were, they were named Hebrew names. In the Hebrew culture, the name is very, very important. Daniel was named Daniel, which means God is my judge. Hananiah's name means grace, mercy, gift from the Lord. Mishael's name means one who is asked for or, or loaned. Azariah means he that hears the Lord. These were all names that would remind them of their God, of their worship, of the truth. Uh, worship that their parents, their mothers and fathers had taught them. And in place of these names, Nebuchadnezzar gave them Babylonian names. And wouldn't you know, he gave them Babylonian names that were connected to the worship of Babylonian gods. I mean, he's, he has a method to his madness, doesn't he? To them, verse 7 says, To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. So Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah became, Shadrach, uh, Dan, became Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You, um, we used to uh, have Bible stories read to us when we were kids growing up. Have you ever heard someone, maybe your parents didn't say this, but parents would say, we're going to talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. That's a, anyway, um, that always stuck, sticks in my mind um, when it was time for bedtime. To bed we go. But Daniel was uh, uh, one of these four men that's being spoken of. He's the author of the book that we're studying. Notice with me, verse 6 says, Now among the, those who were the son, of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Verse 8 says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, you have to understand that the Jewish boys had been raised up being taught that there were certain things they didn't eat. Their religion, their worship prohibited them from eating food that had been offered to idols, for example. They were, they were opposed to having that which had been dedicated to the false gods of Babylon. Now, in Babylon, they were, be, they were being offered this food, and this brought them to a moral crisis. 
there was not only the food that, that uh, had been offered to idols, there was also food that they, as, as young men, had been taught by their parents they shouldn't eat. It wasn't healthy food. The, the king's food and the wine which he drank, they didn't want to take part in. It's very clear from Daniel chapter 1. They were morally convinced they should not do this. And as they, as they found themselves in this conundrum, they had to make a choice. What are we going to do? I mean, we don't have a choice here. We're slaves here. Don't you think they could have rationalized? Don't you think they could have said, well, I mean, it's not like we have any influence over this. This wasn't something that, you know, the cook decided what we're going to eat today. King Nebuchadnezzar himself decided what we're going to eat today. How do we have any choice in the matter? It'd be better to serve God alive than to not be able to serve God dead after all, right? And so all kinds of rationalizations they could have made. But Daniel, the Bible says, purposed in his heart. He made a resolve in his mind, in his heart. He says, you know what? It doesn't matter what happens. I'm going to be true to my God. Even though I'm all the way here in Babel, and even though my parents probably were dead, even though they'll never know, I'm going to be true to the faith that I was raised in. I'm going to be true to the God that I know, the God that I have the scriptures of, and which I worship and I believe in. And so Daniel introduces the question. Daniel chapter 1 introduces the question that recurs throughout end-time Bible prophecy. Do you know what that question is? It's very, very, it's a very, very, it's, 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 so, it's so prolific throughout Bible prophecy, I would call it a theme of end-time Bible prophecy. It's, a, it's introduced right here in Daniel chapter 1, and it's who will you obey? Daniel chapter 1. It's just a story, right? But all these things Paul tells us were written for our example upon whom the ends of the world are come. Because in the time of the end, these stories have great impact on our lives. Living in the day we're living in, the question of Bible prophecy, end time Bible prophecy I'm talking about, is still the same as it was in Daniel chapter 1 in 597 B.C. on the banks of the Euphrates River in the city of Babylon. Who are you going to obey? And what's the choice? You have a choice between God or man. Are you going to obey what God has asked you to do, or are you going to do what man tells you to do, right? What's the question that recurs throughout end time Bible prophecy? Who will you obey? And the choice is between obeying the word of God and obeying the commands of man. And so this is the question that Daniel and his friends are faced with as they come here to this situation in Babylon. Verse 10 says, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Daniel actually asked the chief of the eunuchs to give them a different diet. Now, we're not here. Tonight's topic is not, I'm not talking about health, although we could talk about health. In fact, one of our free gifts was the Daniel plan, right? And um, Rick Warren has, has made that very well known, and, and Daniel teaches us about healthy living. But that's not my topic tonight. My topic is the theme that recurs throughout end-time Bible prophecy. It's, it's who are you going to obey? Are you going to obey God, or are you going to obey, obey man? And so Daniel asks for a, an exemption to be made a, a, an exception to the rule. Even though Nebuchadnezzar has appointed them their food, he says, give us just simple food, not, not all this fancy food from the king's table, not all this meat that's been offered to idols. Just give us plain, simple food, and we'll be fine. And uh, Ashpenaz responds to him. Um, the chief of the eunuchs uh, said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. 
Now this tells you how interested the, the, the King Nebuchadnezzar was in the young, the young uh, prodigies that he was developing in Babylon. He was micromanaging. He was very involved in their training, in their situation. And he is encouraging these, uh, these young men to have the best food, what he thinks is the best food, from his own table. And uh, the chief of the eunuchs says, look, I'm endangering my head. So not only is Daniel and his three friends' refusal to eat what the king has provided a risky move for them, they are potentially putting others at risk. Is it worth it? Do you really think it's worth it? I mean, I think that many people today would, might, might conclude that Daniel and his three friends were being a little bit too rigid, you know? Maybe they were being too inflexible. Maybe they weren't quite... Uh, maybe they weren't quite up with the times. Some people might even consider Daniel a legalist because he was sticking to these, these rules that the God of, of the Hebrews had given him. That's what he thought, right? I know some people would think that. But I want to tell you, friends, I don't think Daniel was a legalist. I don't think he was doing... You see, legalism, legalism is different from obedience. Can I, just, can I just share with you a little bit about that? Legalism, legalism is to say that um, I'm going to follow God's command so that God will love me. Legalism is trying to earn as if, as if anything we do could make God love us more. You see? It's trying to earn, be meritorious, to somehow deserve God's favor, or God's grace, or God's salvation. That's what legalism is. I'm going to follow God's command so that God will love me or love me more. Obedience, on the other hand, follows God's commands because we love God. You see the difference? There's a big difference. We love God because He first loved us, right? And I think that that's why Daniel, if you read the story of Daniel, you have to believe that Daniel was in love with the God of heaven. You have to believe that Daniel had a personal relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Are you agreeing with me? Do you see that in the story of Daniel? Daniel loved God. And that's why Daniel was able to say, look, I'm going to do what pleases God, not so that God will love me. He already loves me. I'm going to do what God loves me because uh, uh, I want to do what God wants me to because I love Him. And that's a wonderful, wonderful testimony we see flowing from the life of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 says, So Daniel said to the steward, Please test your servants for ten days. And let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. Daniel had quite a bit of, little, of wisdom there, didn't he? Wisdom and tact. He was very, very, uh, very clever in the way he spoke with the, uh, the prince of the eunuchs. Look, we don't want to put your life in danger. Just, just ten days. Just give us... A chance. I suppose if Nebuchadnezzar said, what's going on, he would, have, he would have said, well, this is just a temporary thing, right? Maybe that would be his out. And I suppose the, the chief of the eunuchs must have said, well, 10 days, what could it hurt them? They're probably not going to lose too much weight or look too sick after only 10 days, right? Could, could 10 days make any difference? Huh? What do you think? Well, let's see what the Bible says. At the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Can ten days make a difference? With God's blessings, it can, friends. You see, not only were, were Daniel and his friends eating healthy food, they were also sleeping at night with a clear conscience. 
And that is one of the best blessings for health any person can ever have. Daniel and his three friends, I bet they weren't just sleeping well. They probably were exercising. They probably were doing other things to make sure that by the end of that 10-day trial, they would be allowed to stay on their special situation, their special diet. What was the outcome of it? Daniel chapter 1 and verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Continuing on, verse 18 and 19. Now at the end of the days, this is the end of their three-year training. When the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king, the king himself, you see how involved he is? With these, with these young men that are being trained, the king interviewed them. And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. Now, this is the background. This is the story to what we talked about last night um, when, when these young boys were included among the wise men of Babylon. This is how they came to that prominence. This is how they became a part of the headline story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which we review from last night. You Here you have the, the four empires that, that uh, the dream of Daniel chapter 2 reveals. Babylon, 605 to 539 B.C. Medo-Persia, 539 to 331. Greece, 331 to 168. Rome from 168 B.C. to A.D. 476. And um, you would think that this would be a continuing sequence of progressions, right? But no, after that, this part of the world would no longer be ruled by one ruler. But in fact, seven words would control the destiny of what had been the Western Roman Empire. They shall not cleave one to another. And some of the greatest armies, some of the greatest generals, some of the brightest minds, even today some of the brightest politicians have tried to reunite Europe together. But the Bible's prophecy still stands firm. They shall not cleave one to another. And so we find here this fascinating prophecy of how there would be a, a, uh, a uh, divided Europe all the way till the time of the end, but that's not the end of the story. There would also be a stone cut out without hands that would destroy the image, right? So we learned last night about what all these symbols represented. We talked about how Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, you are this head of gold, and that swelled Nebuchadnezzar's natural uh, uh, disposition to pride, but these words deflated him. You, after you shall arise another kingdom, what does it say? Inferior, inferior to yours. It's bad enough to know that another kingdom is going to come along, but it's even worse to think that it's going to be an inferior kingdom <laughs> that's going to replace yours, right? And so here we find that uh, Nebuchadnezzar would not last, his kingdom would not last forever, but that kingdom would be replaced, and there would be a kingdom one day that would last forever. What did it say in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44? And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Isn't that good news? That is what I look forward to. I don't look forward to better life here, although there's nothing wrong with, with uh, God seeking God's blessings in this life. There's nothing in this world that compares. The best things in this world can't compare to what God has planned for us in His kingdom. And so this kingdom is going to be not just a great kingdom, it's going to be an eternal kingdom. It's going to last 
forever. It will never be destroyed, right? It will last forever. This is a characteristic of God's kingdom, but it's a characteristic of, a characteristic of God's kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar wanted for his kingdom. This is what we find in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3 as we move into Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar wanted his kingdom to last forever. In fact, this is one of the inscriptions on a Babylonian tablet said, By the fortifications of Azagala and Babylon, I have strengthened and established the name of my reign forever. And there are many other inscriptions found on Babylonian bricks and tablets which indicate that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to set up an eternal kingdom. He wanted to set up a, a reign, a succession of rulers that would last forever. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's ambition was. He wanted his kingdom to last forever. But what did God tell him? Through Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, your kingdom is not going to last forever. There's a God in heaven who is going to set up a kingdom that will last forever. That's what the message of Daniel chapter 2 and verses 40 through 44 was. And so Nebuchadnezzar here is aspiring to set up an eternal kingdom which God said he will set up. He is aspiring to take some of the prerogatives of God in setting up an everlasting dominion. Now you remember that after Daniel revealed to him this, this dream that he had received and the interpretation of it, the king had said to Daniel, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 47, Truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar elevated Daniel. He gave him many gifts, as he had promised the wise men um, would happen. And he also, because of, of uh, Daniel's intercession, he also uh, he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to high positions in the Babylonian government. So Nebuchadnezzar has acknowledged that there's a God in heaven who is the God of God and the King of Lords, Right? He's acknowledged that, and for the time being, his, his mystery being solved, his, his prayers being answered, you might say, the dream being revealed, he's at peace knowing that God has revealed the future. But you know, Nebuchadnezzar was one of these planner, schemer, worrier types. <laughs> we learned that from Daniel chapter 2, right? He laid on his, lay, lay on his bed worrying about what was going to happen in the future. And the more he thought about the dream... The more he thought about the interpretation, the more he thought about the head of gold being replaced by chest and arms of silver, the more it bothered him. You see, there's something about the truth that Nebuchadnezzar didn't like. Now let me ask you a theoretical question, a philosophical question. Because you don't like the truth, does it make it not the truth anymore? <laughs> Our title is fools who fight the future. And last night we talked about the various rulers who tried to defy those words, they will not cleave one to another. Tonight we have another fool, Nebuchadnezzar himself. He's trying to defy the future. He's trying to, he's trying to fight the truth that God says is inevitable. And so he doesn't like what God has said. He, he becomes, and this is why it's important for us to study these chapters, he becomes a type, if you understand that phraseology, that terminology, a type of the Antichrist who would come thousands of years later. A type is like a, a little illustration of what would become. It's sort of like, a, like a, a parable, like a model or something like that. The type and the anti-type. The, the, the uh, 
antitype replaces the type, right? And that's why they call it the antitype. I'm probably lost you there. Um, but the prefix anti does not just mean against. It also means in place of. Do you understand? The antitype replaces the type because it becomes the real thing. And the antichrist attempts to replace Christ. Now what we find is, and hold, bear with me for just a minute. What we find when we get to the book of Revelation is that Babylon shows up. I mean, Babylon's long since destroyed. When John's on the Isle of Patmos, Babylon is a, is a pile of rubble out in the Iraqi desert. There's nobody living in Babylon. It's already been destroyed. God has said it will never be rebuilt, right? So what is it doing showing up in the last day's prophecy? It's because Babylon of old becomes a type or a symbol of what will be in the future it becomes a, an object lesson for us to understand what the future holds. And so the Antichrist, which is sometimes in, in some ways referred to as Babylon in the, in the book of Revelation, is because of the ways in which Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon attempt to take the place of God. We already saw Nebuchadnezzar wanted to establish an eternal kingdom, right? He wanted to establish an eternal kingdom. God said, no, I'm going to establish an eternal kingdom. He did not like what God said was going to happen. The more he thought about it, the more he said, I don't like just being a head of gold. I don't like just being the, the first most important preeminent part of this image. I want to be the whole thing. And he began to, to dream up, not literally, but scheme up, a different symbol, a different image, an image that would represent the truth as he wished it to be. He would have an image of pure gold. He fell victim to the problem that you and I sometimes fall into. God says, but I think. Isn't that sort of human nature? God says, but I don't like it. So I think... I can do something else. And maybe if I just don't like it enough, maybe if I just disagree with it enough, maybe if I run away from it enough, maybe if I fight it enough, it won't be true. I've been there. In my own spiritual walk, I've been there. Where I knew God was calling on my life, where I knew God was speaking to my heart, and yet I didn't like what I thought understood him to be saying. Do you know God is always right? He always knows what's best for us. Always. Do you believe that? Yes. He always knows what's best for us. And we ourselves in our finite human understanding, we're blind to the realities that God knows. And we sometimes make decisions or try to make decisions. We also sometimes are fools fighting the future, aren't we? Because ultimately, the truth is going to triumph. We can't, we might not like it, but it's true. And so we might as well surrender our hearts and our lives and not fall into this trap which Nebuchadnezzar finds himself into. God says, but I think. And uh, so Nebuchadnezzar decides, I'm going, to, I'm going to find a way to illustrate a different image, a different future for Babylon. Now, I'm guessing, I could be wrong, because the Bible isn't explicit about it, but I'm guessing that the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's interpretation had made its way around the city uh, streets and back alleys 
of Babylon. Don't you think? I mean, if it hit the headlines that all the wise men were going to be killed, which I'm guessing it did, then don't you think people would want to know, oh, well, why are you still here today? You were supposed to be killed yesterday, right? And pretty soon the story would be told, well, we couldn't tell the king's dream, but then this young Hebrew exile named, ba- named Daniel came, and he told the dream. And what, what was the dream anyway? And what did it mean? And, and that was not very good politics, let me tell you. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar heard that story being repeated, and, and the, re- the story was that Babylon one day is going to fall. Now, how is that for politics, right? I mean, all your enemies are going to be emboldened by that. So he needed a different story to be told, a story which he would make sure was true just because he wanted it to be true. And he would make a golden image which symbolized that Babylon is going to last forever. And just to make sure that that story which had spread around the empire already would be corrected, he would bring the leaders from all of the different regions around Babylon, around his empire, he would bring them to Babylon and he would have them see this image very different from that story that Hebrew boy told about an empire that would last forever. Notice what it says, Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, we could talk about these staggering dimensions, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, an image of gold. There was a lot of gold there, friends. You talk about impressive. This should have impressed those people from all the different regions of at least one thing, of the wealth of the city of Babylon, right? Nebuchadnezzar had a lot of money. Now, that should have been a bit of intimidation in itself. So he sets it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, and notice what he does. He says in verse 2, King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Sometimes people think that if they get enough, enough people agreeing with them, then what they're saying is true. <laughs> does that work? Now, it helps us. We feel better about our, 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 our uh, ideas. God says, but I think, and enough people think like me, then I feel better about it, right? And Nebuchadnezzar is wanting a bunch of people to be in on this. It's not just him. He's wanting a bunch of people to be involved and to agree and to go along with it. Daniel chapter 3 and verses 4 through 6. They're gathered now on the plain of Dura, and the image is there erected before them. And then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So two things that Nebuchadnezzar is doing to make sure this happens, make sure it goes the way he he wants it to go. Number one, he's using an impressive display, not only of gold, but an impressive display of musicians and musical instruments. Can you imagine this whole orchestra of Babylon? I mean, that in itself would be pretty moving, right? And I can just imagine the music must have been calculated. I I suppose it was commissioned a special, special, you know, composer to, to make this music just for this event. That would, that would bring all the people into unison and harmony and, and bring them all together and get them excited and the, mo- the music would modulate and modulate and go faster and faster and everyone would be excited and, and, and as soon as this would happen, they were all to do something. They were all to bow down, fall down and worship. And on the other hand, besides all this positive like um, encouragement, emotions, they were faced with a threat. And it wasn't just an idle threat. Remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar. 
if you don't fall down and worship, you're going to be cast into a fiery furnace. Maybe it was the furnace that was there to use when they smelted or melted the gold to make the image. I don't know. But here's a burning, fiery furnace. They can see the smoke. Maybe they can see the sparks. They could maybe even feel the heat. They knew Nebuchadnezzar meant what he was talking about. You have a choice. You either fall down with everyone else or you will be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. The issue in Daniel chapter 3, the issue is that Nebuchadnezzar was taking one step further in making himself a symbol of the Antichrist that would come. Because now he is asking for the worship that only belongs to the God of heaven. He's already said he knows there's only one God. There's the King of kings, the, the God of gods and the King of lords. But now he's wanting not, to be, not, not the people to worship that God. He's wanting them to worship the image. Now let me ask you a question. When they were worshiping the image, would they really be worshiping the image? Or would they be representing, would they be worshiping the power or the person that the image represented? Do you understand? I mean, if, da if, if Nebuchadnezzar were to sit out on the plain of Dura on his golden throne and say, bow down and worship me, don't you think that would be sort of met with resentment and not so politically correct and all that. But when he makes a golden image and asks the, the world to bow down to it, he's doing the same thing. He's essentially asking that image is, is vicariously representing him, and, and as they worship the image, they're really worshiping Nebuchadnezzar, aren't they? And he is trying to take the worship that belongs to God alone. Can you see now why John the Revelator was led to use Babylon? as a symbol for what happens at the end of time. We're going to get to that. So, here we have Nebuchadnezzar threatening with death anyone who does not worship the image. And on that plain of Dura on that day, we know there were three Hebrew boys. Where was Daniel? We don't know. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar, being that Daniel was the one that had... That had given the interpretation which is the antithesis or which this image is the antithesis of, perhaps he was just embarrassed to have him there. Perhaps in his high position he left Daniel in charge in his absence conveniently so that he wouldn't be there. Maybe he knew Daniel wasn't going to go along with this production. But there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there's all the rulers gathered from all the provinces the air must have been thick with anticipation. The conductor raised his baton. The music began to play. And the Bible says that at the time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flutes, harp, and lyre, and symphony, symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image, which King Nebuchadnezzar, had set up. They fell down and worshipped the gold image. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted. Exactly what he wanted. But you know what? Nebuchadnezzar didn't count on one thing. He didn't count on those three Hebrew boys that he'd put in high positions of the empire 
actually having, especially separated from Daniel, actually having the fortitude and the conviction to stand against his threats and the, the sway of the popular majority. I mean, wouldn't it have been hard if you were standing there and the whole, the whole, the whole plane is filled with important people, dignitaries, educated people, men of influence and power, probably people you knew, your colleagues. And they all, in, in harmony, in unity, were doing one thing. How easy would it be to do the, a different thing? It's not easy, is it? I mean, we are creatures of, we want to follow, we want to be in the majority, don't we? We want to follow along and, and be well-liked and appreciated. But has there ever been a time when it's safe to follow? The majority? Now, let me tell you, there's nothing meritorious of being in the minority. There's nothing, nothing good about just standing out and being different, necessarily. But has the majority often been wrong if we look in history? What about the time of Noah? The majority? Was it safe to follow the majority then? No. What about in the time of Jesus? The time of Jeremiah? If history tells us anything, it should tell us that we should not blindly follow the majority. We ought to think for ourselves. And here on the plain of Dura, these three young boys are willing to stand for their own conviction. Isn't it an amazing story? It's an amazing story of three young Hebrew boys who said, our God says we should not bow down to other gods. We should not bow down to graven images. Our God says that there's only one true God. We're going to only supposed to worship him. And even though somebody might have, might have, uh, might have speculated, and I, I, I like this little painting of, uh, of the three boys. I don't know if that's how it was. They might have been scattered throughout all, all individually. I don't know. But you see this, this guy next to them? This artist concept, you know, imagination. But you see this guy standing next to them, um, trying to get them to bow down? Come on, guys, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Now would be a great time to tie your shoe. You know, just come on. And, and yet these three boys are standing erect. They are standing and being counted for God. What a story. What an amazing story that we find here in Daniel chapter 3. And once again we see this question. Daniel 1, we met it. Who are you going to obey, God or man, right? It was just a simple issue, a matter of diet and health in Daniel chapter 1, right? It seems like something so small. Who could make a big deal about it? But guess what, friends? When you're faithful in little things, you'll also be faithful in what? Big things. That's something Jesus taught, isn't it? He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And these young men had been put in a position of power and influence by, and they had been, they'd been blessed by God because they were faithful in little things. When you're faithful in little things, you'll be prepared for bigger tests. I hate to tell you that. But here they were in a position of a big test. And they were prepared to be faithful in a big thing because they'd been faithful in little things. And so the, uh, the, uh, the three boys are standing there while everyone else is worshiping. And they must have been saying some mantra about how great Babylon is and live forever, O King Nebuchadnezzar, and all the rest. Because that's what the Chaldeans said when they came and told them, O oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 8. They came, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. And they spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O King, live forever. You, O King, verse 10 have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. 
and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you set over the affairs of the prophets of Babylon. Um, do you find that they might have had a little resentment there? You think? Certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the prophets of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. What do you think Nebuchadnezzar's response is? Oh, well. Is that what Nebuchadnezzar said? What does the Bible say? Moving on. The, uh, the, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar goes on and he says in verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Is he happy about this? He's filled with rage and fury, and yet he knows he has these fine young men. He must have had some respect for them because he actually offers to give them a second chance. He says, now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm going to call the conductor, and I'm going to have you start all over again. We're going to start right back up at the top of the score. We're going to start and hit it again, and this is time. If you fall, if you fall down and worship, you'll be all right. Good. I'll, I'll, we'll just pretend this never happened. But if you do not worship, you will be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Do you hear what Nebuchadnezzar is doing now? Nebuchadnezzar is not just trying to subtly supplant the worship of God. He is now openly defying the God of the Hebrews. The God he said is the king of kings and the God of gods. He says, he's saying, even your God can't deliver you out of my hands. I will win this argument. Why? Because he thought he was in control. He thought he was in control of the future. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. What they're really trying to say there is we don't have to think about this. We don't have to, we don't have to be anxious or careful as we deliberate this decision. We don't have to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Did they, what did they say? He is able to deliver us, right? And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not... If not, what? If he's not able? If he chooses not to, right? He is able. They know that. Our God is able. Can you say amen? amen. Our God is able. We don't, we don't have one iota of doubt. Nebuchadnezzar, we're standing here on the plain of Dura with all the most powerful men in the world in agreement that we are idiots. We're standing here in front of an imposing 90-foot-tall, 9-foot-wide golden image representing the wealth of the world. And we're standing here, and we're saying, it doesn't matter if the whole world is against us. Our God is able. Our God is able to deliver us. 
and he will if he wants to deliver us. But if not, even if he doesn't deliver us, even if he chooses not to deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the image which you have set up. Whew. Our God is more powerful than you. He can deliver us. If he chooses not to, it doesn't matter. We're still not going to do what you ask us to do. Because we worship the one true God. We are his followers. We would rather obey God and die than obey man and live. What a testimony. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, if he was angry a few minutes ago, <laughs> he was going cross-eyed. He was so angry. He was really angry now. The Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19, was full of fury, and the expression on his face towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego changed. He spoke and commanded that they should heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. That's pretty hot. I don't know how hot it was, but seven times sounds pretty hot. And he commanded certain men, mighty men of valor, who were in his army, to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, here, what did these three men say? They said, our God is able to deliver us, right? Now here they stand, and, and the king's so angry that his very facial expressions are contorted, and he, he's angry with them, and he's, he's, he's demanding the furnace be heated hotter, seven times hotter. That didn't happen in just 30 seconds. You know, They must have taken a few minutes to do that. And all the while, these three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're standing there, they're waiting. They're waiting. What would they be waiting for? They're waiting for God to deliver them, right? I mean, how is he going to do it? I don't know, but, but surely he's going to deliver us and, and soon these mighty men of valor. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is not taking any chances here, right? He doesn't want anyone to be able to say that they got away from him. And so he, he commands the, most, the strongest, most mighty men of valor in his military to come up and to bind them. Now, once you're bound, you're thinking, okay, God, you didn't deliver me yet. Right? Now, any time now. That furnace is getting pretty hot over there, right? And, and pretty soon, these mighty men come up and they pick them up and they start carrying them off. And God, you know, we're waiting. Anytime now, you could choose, but it doesn't really matter because we're going to serve you anyway. And do you know what happened? It's an amazing story. The Bible says these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were... This sentence is really a very heart-stopping sentence, and they were cast into the burning fire furnace. Somehow, somehow, they thought, they believed God would deliver them. Verse 22 says, therefore, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. What happened, friends? Why did God save them? Aren't you glad the story doesn't end there? 
If the story ended there, it would be very depressing when we read about Babylon again in Revelation. Because remember, Babylon has become a type, a symbol of what's going to be in the future. But the good news is, friends, that God doesn't have to save in only one way, the way we think he can save. Daniel 3, verses 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not throw three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, Yes, true, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Wow. God did not prevent Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from being thrown into the fiery furnace. But he did prevent the fiery furnace from hurting them. He not only prevented the fiery furnace from hurting them, he was in it with them. Oh, aren't you thankful that we serve a God who is able to do the impossible? And uh, the story continues about how God, how Nebuchadnezzar called them out and, and there wasn't even smoke on their clothes. They didn't even smell like the fire. And meanwhile, his mighty men had thrown them into the fire. They were all dead from just getting that close to the furnace, but they weren't even touched. Their hair wasn't even singed. The only thing that burned, according to the Bible, was the ropes that those mighty men had bound them with. Now, why is this important for us? Not just a great story for us to read to kids. It's important because the book of Revelation borrows this imagery in Revelation chapter 13. And it, it uses this imagery in talking about a beast. There are two beasts in Revelation chapter 13. A first beast and a second beast. And we're not going to have time to get into great detail here. But what you're going to see, this is one of the scariest passages in the book of Revelation. And what you're going to see is it doesn't have to be scary. There's no reason for it to be scary. Revelation chapter 13, very quickly, verses 11 and onward. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. And he spoke like a dragon. Verse 12. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven in the sight of, on earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make a what? Make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and did live. Here you find, and we are not going to go into all the details tonight. We'll, in a future prophecy uh, seminar, we'll talk about it on, a, on one of the coming evenings. But here you find in Revelation chapter 13 a, uh, a story or a prophecy of a, an event that is yet still future that borrows language from Daniel chapter 3. It does. And it doesn't really tell us explicitly in Revelation 13 what the outcome is. It tells us it's a pretty dire situation. It says in verse 15, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be what? Do you see the similarities between Babylon of old and the, and the Babylon of the future? By the way, it's called Babylon in Revelation chapter 17, this, this power. It's referred to as Babylon. And so here you find Babylon of old commanded worship. It tried to take that which only belonged to God, and it commanded worship on the pain of death. Babylon in the future re uh, requires worship and on the pain of death. 
if there's not obedience. I believe the same issue which, ne which Daniel had to face in chapter 1 and which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to face in chapter 3. What was that issue? Who are we going to obey, right? I believe that those living in the last days have to face that same issue. Who are you going to obey? Are you going to obey God? And apparently God. Or are you going to obey man and live? He causes all both small and great rich and poor to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Would you agree with me that many people find this the scariest passage or one of the scariest passages in the book of Revelation? That whole thing about 666 and all that. Because people get scared. People get afraid. Listen, there's no reason to. If you understand where this story came from, it came from Daniel chapter 3. The issues are the same. And the outcome is going to be the same as well. You see, my friends, this is a, a type and an anti-type. And, and as, we, as, we, as we conclude here, we see that ancient Babylon sub, uh, and future Babylon subvert the worship of the world. They both create an image through which it is vicariously worshipped. They, uh, they both use signs and wonders to deceive, and they both demand obedience on the pain of death. But the good news is that God has a people in the past, and he will also have a, a people in the future. Amen? He's going to have a people. And they uh, face the timeless question, who are you going to obey, God or man? They choose to stand the word of God and obey God at any cost, and are not necessarily kept from all the tests and trials, but they are delivered even in them and through them. Jesus is with them every step of the way. Oh, what a wonderful God we serve. Revelation's prophecies become much more understandable and filled with hope when we realize they are based on stories we know the outcome of. God does not promise to keep us from all the fiery trials, but he will be with us through them. Are you thankful for that, God? Amen. Are you thankful that he is going to be with us through any trial, through any difficulty, through any, any struggle? The only thing burned in the fire were the ropes that bound them. I propose to you that the trials of this life, even the future, what it holds, they can't hurt us. They only free us from the things that bind us. What a wonderful, amazing God that we have that can deliver. You see, in the Bible, I find reason to be hopeful about the future. I find reason to, to not worry, not be fretful, not be afraid. But to know that the same God who delivered those three boys on the plain of Dura is still alive and on the throne today. And he can and he will and he wants to be with us to the events of the future. If we are willing to follow him, we're willing to put our hand into his, we don't need to worry about what's going to happen. He will take care of us. I want to be a part of that everlasting kingdom. I want to, I don't, I'm not worried about what the future holds because I know the God who holds the future. Yeah. And I tonight want to just say, Lord, bring it on. Bring it on. Let's have men and women in Dalton, Georgia to stand for the right no matter what the cost. Let's have men and women in this community, in your neighborhood, let's, let's be those people, let's be those dads. Those Shadrach, Meshachs, and Abednego's. And let the world know there's a God in heaven we want to worship him. Is that your desire today? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to learn from the past so that we can be confident in the future. Lord, tonight we've talked about it, a lot of things, but we just want to pray. 
that you would touch our hearts, that you would make us choose to follow you no matter what the cost. We love you, and we thank you in Jesus' This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot audioverse.org.